Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. What happens when a strain of malware creates a botnet army to attack websites like Twitter and SoundCloud? After last week, I think we know. But what do we do now as an industry? That's what we talk about with Jim Hunter, a IoT consortium in Greenwave Systems, on today's podcast. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Mike Wolf. Today's guest is Jim Hunter, the chief scientist for Greenwave Systems, also co-chair of the Privacy and Security Subcommittee at the Internet of Things Consortium. And so I wanted to have Jim on the podcast. I've been actually meaning to have Jim on the podcast for a while, but this was a great week to do it because he's one of the sharpest guys I know in IoT. And we wanted to talk about what happened last week with the Mirai malware and the botnet army of IoT devices created one of the biggest DDoS attacks in recent memory. Certainly something that was a wake-up call for the industry that really raised the profile of this issue. And so we, I wanted to talk to him about what we saw, the implications uh, for the industry going forward, and whether we as an industry, whether appliance manufacturers uh, can protect themselves, what to do to protect themselves, uh, and make their IoT-connected devices more secure. This is the first of two podcasts I'll be releasing this week. And my next one is with Ram Malasani, the CEO of Securify, the maker of the Almond Routers. So stay tuned for that in a day or two. Before we get on the show, I want to give a shout out to August Home, uh, the makers of the video doorbell and the smart locks, uh, etc. We've had Nate Williams on the show uh, in the last couple of months, one of the most popular podcasts uh, we've done recently. And the reason I, I want to give a shout out, shout out to them is I had gotten an email from a listener to the Smart Home Show. Uh, it goes by the name of Jeremy. And Jeremy wrote to me that his wife has been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Terrible news. He went on to say that basically he wanted to give my opinion on SmartWalks. I work with HomeKit. He said he had an Apple TV that acts as a hub. But he wanted to do what he wanted to do is to see if he could get a HomeKit enabled walk. He also wanted a video doorbell that he can allow his wife to walk without having to get up. He basically is trying to use smart home technology uh, to help uh, his family, help his wife just to bring a little bit more ease in this. What is obviously a terrible, terrible time for them, a struggle for them. I thought, well, I'll give you more than my opinion. I'll, I'll get you a lock and a doorbell. Um, Cause I know that people in this industry, guy, guy, people at companies like August would love to help these guys. I reached out to Nate Asked him, hey, can you get do this guy a solid uh, and get him uh, a home kit lock and a video doorbell? And they did that. So I want to give a shout out to August Home uh, for helping Jeremy. Jeremy, I hope you're doing okay. Uh, I wish you and your wife well and hope everything uh, turns out for the best. Real quickly before we start, I want to remind you that we have created a new site. I've created a new site. Uh, I'm writing with others at this new site called The Spoon. It's all about the future of the connected kitchen, the future of food. I'd appreciate it if you want to go check it out. Go to the spoon.tech. That's the URL. Check it out if you're at all interested. I've done a couple of posts uh, recently about Amazon Dash and uh, some of the news that they've had, writing a lot about smart home as well, but through the lens of what it means for the, the kitchen and the, and the cooking side of things. And if you go to the spoon, you can also check out some of the videos from the Smart Kitchen Summit. We're surfacing those now. Lots of great sessions. So if you weren't able to make it to the Smart Kitchen Summit, 
you can actually see some of the sessions. So check that out, thespoon.tech. All right, that's it. Let's get to my conversation with Jim Hunter. Hey, I'm really happy to have Jim Hunter, the chief scientist for GreenWave Systems, on the call today. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. You know, the reason I thought of having you on the podcast to talk about the Mariah Botnet is for a couple of reasons. One, you're the co-chair of the Privacy and Security Committee on I the IoT Consortium, uh, a group that I I'm involved with as well. You're also a chief scientist for GreenWave. But also, uh, I'm going to embarrass you. You're like one of the smartest guys out there around IoT. I think you said that Julie Jacobson also embarrasses you uh, around uh, your, uh, how connected you are and how smart you are. But I, I hope I don't embarrass you too much. But yeah, I wanted to have you talk about what what's going on because I think this is an important issue. Yeah. So so thank you for the embarrassing compliment. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so Mike, I think that what's interesting is we're seeing a natural evolution in this kind of attack. The attack surfaces are changing. And, you know, what Mirai did actually did was is twofold. First, it exploited the weaknesses of IoT and the very actually the, the weaknesses of, of consumers in general of, you know, just putting up with the um, basics. The basics are the, the generic username and password that are set by the manufacturer. You don't change them. Then they only set so many username and passwords. Some of these products, admin, password, one, two, three, a lot of generic security settings that are there expecting the consumer to change them when they get them. The consumer behavior, however, is, no, I, I don't see the need to do that. I'm not going to do that. So what Mirai did is it took uh, a set, about 60 default username passwords that had a profile, and it said, these are the devices. This is the username password. Once I get past the username password, I can load in my own code. And that's exactly what happened was the Mirai code then uh, zombified these devices to kind of have the single purpose of hammering the DYN DNS uh, website, which is the lookup service for, you know, a lot of reputable uh, large volume websites like, uh, you know, Netflix and Amazon and some of these guys. And it was, a, it was an interesting attack in that, you know, a lot of times we in the IoT space fear that people will hack our devices because they're open to the world and they may be something like a camera facing into our home. But this was one that, like you said, essentially zombified a bunch of devices in aggregate uh, and essentially created an army uh, to basically you know, create a DDoS attack. It was, it was, I guess, a little bit different nature than maybe what we were expecting, but it's still, uh, I think, the type of attack of many that we can probably expect over time unless we as an industry get our act together. Yeah, exactly right. And, and it's not something that we didn't see coming because there's been a website for almost two years now called Shodan. Uh, S-H-O-D-A-N.io. Um, it claims to be the, the Internet of Things, you know, website. But what it does is it actually does exactly that. It scours the web with web crawlers and finds the weaknesses. In fact, it exposed TrendNet video cameras uh, several years ago where that was the case where people were actually talking to um, babies in cribs in their nursery because those cameras were then exposed online. So there's a there's there was a tendency uh, and there's been a trend towards that exposure you're absolutely right Mariah and the attack that happened the denial of service attack happened uh, completely changed what we anticipated versus the manual you know oh here I'm going to expose you and, and if you want to go on the website you can see what's there and exploit it to an automated and mobilized attack of an army of devices but it like I said in the beginning I think it's an evolution and it's it's definitely uh, has a long way to to grow as well there's a lot of danger out there. In a way, I almost feel like this type of uh, maybe out of left field attack, maybe not for someone like you, but I think for the broader industry, it was a little bit surprising. So in a way, if maybe it's it's good in that the 
outcome could be that uh, it was a wake up call in a sense. Like this feels like it brought the awareness around IoT and the vulnerability to next level. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, last year, I wrote uh, I wrote in TechCrunch, and I suggested, and I actually used the words "unfortunately" um, to get for a wake up call. Something like this is going to happen in 2016, and I think that I think that is exactly the wake up call that we need. And I don't think that as an industry we can really let this opportunity slip us by. That's why within the Privacy and Security Committee, we're really uh, looking at at this from two different directions. First, who's to blame? The blame on this is not actually the consumer's blame. It's actually the manufacturers, the people that are making these devices and expecting that consumers will take a certain action or do a certain behavior. People don't change, and you can't require them to change just because they buy your product. What needs to happen is the manufacturers need to change. They need to build products that actually either have, you know, unique username passwords for every single rollout, you know, device that goes out there. And some companies actually have that on their products or don't allow that product to be part of the wider internet unless that username password has changed. You bring up a great point in that it isn't the consumer's fault because we as consumers are generally lazy. We're sold to build a, you know, we're sold something and we don't know all the vulnerabilities because we're laymen, but, but the, the manufacturer by and large has to do things to safeguard them. And, and you alluded to one of them. Like I think the obvious uh, vulnerability here was default username and passwords that is an, that is something that obviously needs to change, but there's a lot of other things obviously that we or safeguards we could take. What are some of the other safeguards if you're a maker of these connected devices you can take to help protect consumers? Yeah, so there's a wide variety of, of changes. There's architectural changes, there's software changes, there's even firmware changes. So let's go through a couple of them. Architecturally, architecturally, if you put a product in the home and you allow direct contact into the home to that product, that's a bit of a challenge. Architecturally, the, the trend has been to take it so that devices that are placed in the home reach to the cloud. It's always an outbound communication. Even at GreenWave, that's what we do is in any of the products go directly to the cloud, not the other way around. By you know putting down a welcome mat and welcome people to this IP address, then you've got a challenge. Now, with the evolution of IPv6, you're going to see a lot more of this because every, every identification, every ID is going to be unique and, and accessible. This, the second thing from an architectural perspective is the is the firmware design. There's a lot of uh, opportunities now with things uh, like secure elements. Um, the ability to take the crucial part of the code, the crucial part of the code could be that part that protects the the kernel of functionality. If it's a Linux-based system, it protects the, the operating system. It locks down sudo. It, it does things to actually make sure that you can't just get in with generic Username, password, just can't get in you know, with generic uh, code commands and override the code that's there. We actually saw this happen um, about, I guess it was about four months ago, when the Jeep Cherokee, uh, that, that vehicle was hacked. And I, yeah. I put hack in air quotes because there was a lot of barriers that were dropped to prove it was possible. But exactly what happened was there was a remote hacker. They were able to get past firewalls and protection and then upload their own code to change the functionality of that of that processor and therefore affect the brakes and the, all those things. I think that the, what we should see and what we should understand is this is not going to diminish unless we make it diminish because the, the powers that be that are doing the hacking, and I don't want to be you know alarmist here, but hacking is a corporate and in some cases a state-sponsored event these days. There are 
it's not just a casual thing with a guy in the garage, a kid in the garage like it used to be. It's something much bigger, and it's even automated by bots that are online. So we have to take precautions that prevent something like this from escalating or, or even repeating. This is a very real worry. If you have uh, a, a, an army of devices that are vulnerable that can be coordinated in a coordinated attack to do something like bring down websites, that becomes very scary very quickly. We, we obviously all need to take this more seriously, but even like at the state, at the kind of the state and the federal government level, they need to start paying more close attention. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not just about, you know, all the outbound traffic from these devices. It's also you, these devices are computers themselves. So you could actually, a sophisticated hacker could actually be performing distributed computing uh, opportunities whereby, say, you're hacking a very complex key or code and you don't have the horsepower to do that. You could certainly distribute the rules against a whole bunch of machines, like millions of machines, to actually do the heavy lifting for you and, and bring back faster hacks, decryptions, whatever that nefarious activity is, you know, than you could with a single processor. You talked a little bit about vulnerable middleware. You know, I... One of yeah. the things I couldn't help but notice was with Mirai is they, they targeted you know, some net cams and some routers from the same manufacturer. When you look at a lot of the, the manufacturers of low cost hardware, mm-hmm. even the ones that come into us with, with, you know, some, some fairly big brand names on them, oftentimes they're just hardware from ODMs, OEMs in, in Asia where they don't, there's not a lot of original design there. You know, how vulnerable are we as an industry? Because that oftentimes is the, the prototypical way in which low-cost commodity hardware comes to the U.S., how, how vulnerable are we and how can we kind of correct that when oftentimes brands that bring this type of product in the hardware in, in the U.S. don't have a lot of design or engineering expertise? Yeah, so that's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think that it comes down to the fact that you're absolutely right. The communications, the stacks, the even to some level, the, the cameras themselves are system on a chip. So there's no reason to get into it and no reason to dig into it. So you just put it. You, you then turn into a marketing company, put a wrapper around it, and you push it out there, and you don't realize you know, exactly what it is that you're selling. I think that anybody that actually offers a, offers a product these days uh, that connects to the consumer, allows the consumer to go online, these type of things, at a minimum, they need to have security concerns. They need to have somebody that is responsible for security within that organization, even if it's just a marketing organization – the reason, the reason for this, and this is something else that I wrote about last year, is it's right now it's an inconvenience. Very soon, that inconvenience is going to turn out turn into a liability. Where I could see this several years from now, where companies that do not take proper security precautions before pushing uh, a mass market product or a product out to a consumer, and then that consumer gets hacked or or, or violated in some way um, from privacy to you know leveraging them in a botnet, I think that they're going to be held legally culpable, the manufacturers of these products. So I think that as a, as a wake-up call for what we have today is, is very real, but I think that very sh- in a short term, it's going to be less than irresponsible and more illegal to actually do this. The law will be, get, be getting involved. You know, what are the impacts of, of higher-profile events like this? You know, one part it's good because it is a wake-up call, but the other part it actually creates uncertainty, awareness, and fear to the point where you may see companies pull back from initiatives. You know, if you're like a large appliance maker or uh, a device maker and you wanted to kind of move into IoT, you get scared away from this because you see about some, you see some of the potential liabilities that you just alluded to. Do you think that's going to happen? And if that is, you know, if that does, or people are thinking about this in a large company or even a startup, what would you say to them? So, and I speak in terms of the Privacy and Security Council and specifically of the IoTC, 
I think that just real quickly for right. people that for people that don't know, IOTC is the IoT Consortium. Uh, it's an industry organization that focuses on IoT. Sorry, I just want to get that no, out there for people who don't know. No worries, and, and I'll add to that: it's an industry organization that focuses to help manufacturers make better, more reliable, and usable products. So, from that perspective, I would say that you're absolutely right. FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt is always there in la- with the lack of information. If you don't have the information, then you fill it in with your worst fears. But I think that part of the opportunity that we have within the, the Internet of Things Consortium. Uh, and indeed, within as leaders in the industry, is to replace that FUD with information. And that information is, you know what, there's really simple steps that can be done to get you off of that list of hacked devices, right? Here's, here's step one, two, and three, what you can do. If you're on that list today, here's what you should be thinking about immediately. Firmware updates, replace the code that's there with something more secure, prompt your consumers, don't let them, you know, continue in this unsafe state. And I think that from a consumer's perspective, you're absolutely right. We're worried about the industry, uh, and anytime this happens, we're worried about industry recoil uh, and, and pulling back. We're also worried about consumer recoil. If consumers, you know, think that oh, the products I'm buying aren't secure, and there's no way I'm going to know how to secure this. This is not my profession. I'm not programming. Scares me. Um, I think that I think that the opportunity really is with the manufacturer, and they can really step up with very little. Um, very little work on their part to actually fix the problem at hand and even to improve their position. So within the IOTC, uh, we're wanting to work with all the manufacturers both in and outside of the IOTC to make sure that we take the best efforts to mitigate the problems that came from this and to, to help prevent it happening in the future. Speaking specifically to consumers, because we, you know, we've largely been talking to an industry audience, you know, mm-hmm. If you're a consumer, you look around your home, you know, just look around my home. I have a Sonos. I have a, a couple of network cameras. I have a network doorbell. Um, I have a bunch of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi connected devices, whether they're cooking devices. That actually starts to get pretty scary if, you know, I'm not educated about this. I don't know what the vulnerabilities of each are. So speaking specifically to consumers, how can they ensure that they are protected when there's no way if you have 10, 20, 30 connected devices in your home. There's no way to know what vulnerabilities there are. You know, you're absolutely right. And I think that what, while I want to speak to consumers, I actually want to speak to the entire industry. I think there's an opportunity here that we had just like we had in the very beginning of the Internet. In the, in the beginning of the Internet, you know, when we were trying to sell goods and services online or even be able to trust a website, there was nothing there. We didn't know we could trust one website from another or where it was coming from until a company called VeriSign came along and help make it viable to say, oh, yeah, that's a trusted – there's a badge on that website. I know it's trusted. It's been through the testing, so I know it's good. I think the industry needs that. I think we need a VeriSign for IoT so that we know that all of the, the commonplace mistakes are, are, are not there. We know that the company has gone through the, the testing and the requirements to make sure that that's a secure device that you can trust. You're, you're exactly right. There, there's a lot of devices that are starting to find their way into people's homes, into their businesses, and there's not a significant offering to show trust. There's no badge to show trust, and, and we need that as an industry. So we, I think that's a great idea, VeriSign for the industry, that kind of gives that trusted badge of like we know this is followed the best practices. Real quickly, getting back to consumers, is there something – and again, you speak mostly to industry as an industry expert. Is there something that consumers can do to just say, hey, I know that I can't necessarily – uh, or, or maybe a resource online where they can go to say, hey, this device actually at least passes the muster, uh, isn't vulnerable. Um, I can't necessarily get hurt from this. 
You know, I'm not aware at this moment of a resource online that lets me run all my devices and to be able to test them and, and to qualify them. Um, there's an opportunity I there, maybe. <laughs> there's, oh, there's. I think all of this, all of this brings an op- brings a variety of opportunities for the industry to do better and to help to dismiss the FUD and replace it with, as I mentioned, with information that will breed trust. There's, there's a lot of good products. There's a lot of good products out there that do the right thing to protect. Sonos does the right thing to protect. Amazon Echo does the right thing to protect. The Google OnHub. A lot of these products from reputable manufacturers do a lot to protect. The real weaknesses come is the one that you identified, the ones that become commodity, and it's just really you buy it from a marketing company, not from an actual you know, um, uh, technology company when you buy that product. Yeah, and I hate to, you know, because I believe that there's so much innovation going on with newer companies with startups, so I'm not going to necessarily put blame on them. And I don't necessarily want to be a proponent of, hey, go with the big brands, but oftentimes there is, you, you can at least trust that some of the bigger companies like Google or Amazon are going to be doing their homework. Not all the time, though. There might be some, some off, there might be some times when big brands get into this space. I actually think ones that may be more, may be more vulnerable are big brands that are newer to IoT, right? New big brands that have come into IoT, they have maybe their first or second connected product. Their natural footing isn't necessarily in the world of the internet. It's maybe just in a particular space. Do you think that's maybe kind of a, a an area where you might see some vulnerabilities with big companies where they're may basically new to IoT? Yeah, I, and and again, that's the opportunity for the industry, for the IoTC, for other other groups within the industry, is to say, you know what. You're brand new to this. As soon as you deliver a product to a consumer that connects to the Internet, you become a service provider. You need to understand here's the A, Bs, and Cs of security and privacy that you that you need to go for. You're absolutely right. They come in, and they're new to the industry. They're new to this idea of a device touching a consumer's life uh, 24-7 and the responsibility that comes with that. Okay, you did a prediction last year. I think you wrote TechCrunch. You kind of said something like this would happen. What are your predictions for 2017? Maybe if you want to get scary, get scary. Like, but what are what will we see happen next? That could be like uh, another wake up call, or are there particular things you think could happen uh, over the next year or two? I think that if we don't heed, if the industry doesn't, you know, respond appropriately to this challenge. I think that what you're going to find is this botnet, this Mirai. The problem, the biggest challenge with Mirai is it wasn't just a single attacker that put something out there. It was this, this person, this hacker that actually published source code. And that means that source code is out there and anybody can manipulate it to what they need. They, it, it's just like any other program environment. It, it's done a lot of the heavy lifting of how do you make a botnet? How do you, how do you expose the weaknesses? And then how do you focus your output somewhere? And I think that we've seen a little bit of it before this. We've heard about, you know, what happened with Krebs. We've heard about ransoming websites and ransoming URLs. I think that now what we have is the genies out of the bottle. We've got this code now that's out there that untold numbers have that they can now target to their own and bully, bully the Internet, bully websites, bully different technologies. I think that's just the start. I think there's somebody – in 2017, that's going to come up with a brand new way to actually leverage this botnet in a way that we, we're not anticipating that will actually cause more than just disruption of service and loss of dollars for, you know, major websites and, and, and people actually in commerce. I think that there's, there's going to be some, some more negative things that are going to come from this with regards to manipulating of systems. And, and that's, and that's an unfortunate thing. Absolutely. We have to get on top of, this response, we have to be responsible as an industry 
to, to meet this particular challenge head on with a solution. And it's not just the ITC, right? The, the Department of Homeland Security is now issuing what they're giving as the guidance for IoT as well. So it's not just something that's falling in the industry ears. The government is now starting to, to take notice, and not just the government in this country, but governments around the world. So we have an opportunity to make things better and to make 2017 safer. Unfortunately, trends are that this will continue and we will see more loss. And, and unfortunately, the loss will be more than just time. It may be property. And right, right. And as this as botnets leap into physical things and, and don't necessarily just focus on website services and associated things that are largely in the digital world, it could create botnets that ultimately disrupt and change behavior of things in the physical world, moving things. Yeah, exactly. Anything that's actuated and things that come to mind are um, smart cars, self-driving cars, um, elevators, anything that involves people and technology in some sort of uh, physics um, challenge. That's Those are the ones that actually are scaring me. The, the Jeep uh, is, is an example, and I think that did cause the industry to take notice, but I think that we're going to have a lot more of this going forward because now what we've got with the botnet is a lot more processing power to throw at the problem. Well, now that we've sufficiently scared everyone, uh, I, I just want to thank you, Jim, for it taking not time. not the intention of this conversation <laughs> at all. No, it wasn't. Uh, but, no, I, I appreciate it. I think there's some reasonable things that people can do to kind of protect themselves, even if they're, if they're manufacturers, if they're consumers. Where can they find out more information about you, Jim? Um, so you can go to the uh, the Internet Things Consortium uh, website. Just look it up on Google. Um, if you're interested, um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm the IoT Guru. And um, also go to the Greenway website and check out what we're doing because with our platform, you know, security is, is first and foremost. We have a security czar on staff, which we recommend everybody kind of be security thinking when they have products they're going to deliver ultimately to consumers. So you can go to greenwaysystems.com and check out uh, uh, what we're doing as well. Hey, Jim, thanks for spending some time with me. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you learned a little bit about the implications of the Mirai malware and more broadly, security and the importance of security for the smart home. Like I said, Jim's a smart guy. You probably know that by now. So thanks, Jim, for coming on the show. As always, I appreciate every one of you that listens. I appreciate the emails. I appreciate the tweets. So keep those coming. You can find me on Twitter at Michael Wolf. You can email us at thesmartomeshow at gmail.com. If you haven't reviewed the show in iTunes, do so. That always helps. And lastly, check out our new site. Like I said, thespoon.tech. Always appreciate that as well. That's it for now. Stay tuned for a new podcast in just a couple days. But until then, we'll talk to you later.